It's Dr. Stu's podcast. This is Dr. Stu with uh, Kimberly Durden. Uh, back for podcast number 111. We're very happy to be here. I uh, want to thank producer John. He We're up in his uh, elite studios Pen, in, uh, apartment. in North Hollywood, California. And, and the, we have no internet today, so he's jury-rigging his cell phone to <laughs> record and uh, upload Dr. Stu's podcast so you can have it live on tape. If that makes any sense whatsoever. Uh, you can reach us at uh, drstuespodcast.com or on iTunes. You can like us, give us five stars. You can email me at askdrstu at gmail.com. You can reach Kimberly at kimberlydurden.com. And you can like us on Facebook. Uh, I think you can still like us on Facebook. Um, <laughs> Why wouldn't you be able to? And you can to? Twitter, tweet us, and all that other stuff at, at Dr. Stuart Fishbein. Uh, all those things. So, Kimberly, here we are for Podcast 111. I know. And you know what? It's kind of auspicious to me because, like, that number, 111, that's pretty – it's just an awesome number for some reason, all the ones. And you went to this conference, and I cannot wait to hear about it. Yeah, everybody's so. supposed to touch their screen right now because it's 111, it. and then you touch all your loved ones. <laughs> okay. That's what we do in the car when it's, like, 1111 or right. 222 <laughs> or – Or one four forty four. Yeah, exactly. So or if your clock is broken, it's 777. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, okay, so we're going to start today because uh, this is a, I just got back yesterday from uh, a couple of, two, three days in San Diego at the mm -hmm. American College of OBGYN, um, uh, annual uh, business and uh, academic meeting. Uh, I have to say I was very impressed with the uh, meeting itself. I was impressed with the amount of people there. I think there were over 5,000 uh, OBGYNs wow. in, in one town. And I have to impress with the uh, facilities and with the professionalism. For the most part, uh, anything that big is always going to have a few hiccups. Right. But they did a really good job. But the problem, I, uh, you know, obviously me and ACOG, being a fellow, um, I, I think they do some really good things and they do some really bad things. Mm -hmm. And uh, the thing I found most interesting about ACOG at this meeting was how big it is. Right. And how and how diverse it is, and how spread out it is, and how if you wanted to find out who put out this guideline or who said that, it's almost impossible. Really? Yeah. Why? It's, Why can't it's just you? Too big. Don't they have a directory? Sometimes at those conferences, they have a directory of everyone who's attended, and yeah, but it's it's you know trying to reach those people or mm. getting in touch. Again, that's not what I tried to do. I'm just saying that my impression of the of ACOG, like any other organization, when it gets that big, right. It, it, a lot of the messages get lost right. and, and why certain things become guidelines or clinical opinions and why certain things don't stuff is really nebulous. Right. I get it. And uh, I think, again, I don't know about accountability. I don't, I don't, I'm not high enough up mm -hmm. and certainly not in the inner circles of, mm -hmm. I'm not even in the outer circle. I'm not even in the solar system. Did they know, did anybody like come oh, up yeah. to you and harass you or be oh, no harassment. to you? But they, they're no harassment. People say, "Oh, you're that you're that home birth guy." Get out of here! Oh yeah, a couple people said that to wow. me. Wow! But I did I did get a sense from the lecturers who obviously didn't know I was sitting in their lecture and stuff like that. There was some ridicule of breech birth. There was ridicule of home birth. When when one of the guys we'll get to that. One of the guys is talking about VBAC and how ACOG thinks VBAC at home is absolutely contraindicated. And he said something in effect that there are still women who choose to have VBAC at home. And there was like groans. From the audience. Oh my God. Because uh, there's a lot of brainwashing that goes on. Right. And I found that, uh, well, let's get into it because yeah, let's, let's, let's talk, let's talk a I'm little bit about some of the things. I think in our last podcast, you mentioned that they were having the meeting and I was asking you if you were going and you were like, I 
I think I should go. I don't know. I think I should go. So you decided to go, and I just cannot wait. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll tell you specifically the reason I decided to go and then how that sort of completely fell apart, and, uh, but I'll tell you about that in a second. But I sort of want to go in chronological order to the lectures that I went to. Now, obviously, when you go to a big conference like this, there's lectures going on in, in 20 different rooms, and you have to sort of pick. Right. You you you. you you what you're choose interested what in. you're interested in. And sometimes you're interested in two or three things that are going on at the same time. You just have to pick one. Right. And the first one, well, the first few lectures were, were given in the grand ballroom where all the attendees were there. And we, and one of the people that spoke who moved me greatly, and I've, I've spoken to him before through the internet. And a lot of my listeners will know who he is. His name is Neil Shaw. And Neil Shaw is a uh, professor at Harvard. He's a physician at Harvard in Boston. And he, uh, is looking at uh, the birthing world and what's wrong with it. And he gave a talk called basically The Complexity and the Challenge of Too Much Science. Mm. And that was the name of his talk. And, I, and what I'm going to try to do uh, in the remaining time of our podcast is summarize his lecture and some other lectures. And then I'm going to let you sort of drill me on things or, or pick up on points and see, uh, you know, if we can make this uh, real interesting for the list for our listeners. But okay. He started off by sewing, but talking about the complexity that we've created in in, um, in obstetrics, and he his first slide was a picture of, of his labor and delivery where they have seven seven different cans for garbage. Seven different trash cans. Yes. Why they have to have certain trash? And certain certain trash, trash goes in certain cans. Right. And, you know, he got a big laugh from everybody there, but you know, this we shouldn't be laughing because this is the way things are going. Right. You've got the hazardous waste, and you got I don't even know what the seven cans were for, but they were seven different colors. Mm. And it, it, again, just to emphasize the idea right. of complexity, and I thought it was a great way to start his lecture. Yeah, I love that. Um, he saw he thinks that we're that about fifty percent of the cesarean sections that we're doing right now are unnecessary. He, oh, which thanks. sounds like yours truly. Right. So, in other words, if there's one point four to one point five million cesarean sections every year in the United States, basically saying that about seven hundred thousand surgeries are being done that are unnecessary. Did you hear groans from the audience then? Uh, no, no, no. I think that the I think that most of the people agree. the The problem is what's the solution for these right. sorts of things, and and that's where the disagreement comes into play. And um, there are some things that we'll talk about if we get as we go through this today that we'll we'll get to that. Um, early in the seventies, he says that the C section rate began to rise, and I've stated on before on this podcast that the C section rate in nineteen seventy United States was five percent or a little over five percent. Mm-hmm. And now over uh, nationwide, it's thirty-two and a half percent. And in some hospitals, much higher. And he agrees that the rise probably reflects the rise in the beginning of the use of external fetal monitoring. Right. Um, and by ni- by twenty seventeen, we've had a five hundred percent increase in the cesarean section rate, with essentially no change in the cerebral palsy rate or the neonatal death rate. As a matter of fact, we rank thirty-eighth in neonatal death worldwide, and over over fortieth. I couldn't hear the number. But 41 or 42 in maternal death mm. um, in the world, or maybe I, maybe I have the numbers backwards. But anyway, we're we're around 40th in maternal death and neonatal death in the industrialized world, and that is just a horrible place to be when you think of all the resources that we have being poured into that. Um, he said, "Well, maybe the rate ri- rose because we've stopped doing repeats of uh, VBACs." But he looked at the primary cesarean section rate, and he says that mirrors the overall cesarean section rate. So repeat, repeat C-sections don't explain the rise. Then he looked at demographics. So he wait, looked, wait, wait. So you're saying that 
he thought that maybe the numbers were were basically repeats and primary C sections all in one big. You know that was since the, the VBAC rate nationwide has fallen to about seven percent. He thinks that that maybe the rate is rising because of the repeat uh, because of repeat C sections right. being added in. But when you remove repeat sections, the rate is rising at the at the same rate. Got it. So it's not just the repeat C sections that's the problem. Then he talks about demographics. He says maybe the poor, or maybe women of color, right. or maybe um, certain certain uh, medical issues are coming more common, or women are having babies later in life. And and then he looked at that and he said, nope, that's not wow. it either. He says that doesn't explain it. And then he says, well, you know, what about these this huge huge demand of women who are requesting primary elective cesarean section? Right. And he said that doesn't exist. He says there's less than one percent of cesarean sections. Uh, are requested, uh, primary cesarean sections are requested. So that doesn't do it. So then basically he says, let's look at the, let's look at the facilities where these things are being done. And he put up this chart, this, this chart sort of looked like a, a, a graph with uh, rates on one side and hospitals on the bottom and, or vice versa. And he had found that there's, even in certain states, the rates vary from 70 to 7%. Of C-section rate for that particular hospital. For that particular hospital. So what his conclusion was, and what I've said, quite frankly, all along, is the facility is the risk factor. Absolutely. And when you look at, for instance, in California, we put out a, uh, uh, we grade the hospitals um, every year. And when you look at the hospitals all across California, there's huge differences in the C-section rate. And and it's, it's very telling. I mean, there's some... Uh, hospitals in, in, in poor areas that have much higher C-section rates than hospitals. I mean, it's actually not de- just on socioeconomic, kind of like uh, the doctor discussed. But, um, yeah, you can see wide disparities in the in the C-section rates, even if we're just looking at California. So I, I that makes total sense to me. Yeah, and there's actually nothing that can possibly explain the difference between 7% and 70%. 70%. Even it's a hospital uh, like my old alma mater, Cedars-Sinai, that does a lot of high-risk stuff, um, you know, their, their C-section rate is in the high 20s or low 30s at the most. So right. lower, lower than the national average. And they take on all comers. Right. So it really is a, it's, it's, it's a culture in the hospital. Um, and then he tried to analyze it. And sometimes a little, it got a little bit weedy in some <laughs> of his anal, an, analyzing why that happens. But he says, what, what looks at is he looked at delivery suites. And he went to a lot of delivery suites. And he talked to a lot of charge nurses and nurses and people that work in delivery suites. And he basically found out that what happens in a lot of these places is because of the design of the system, not to the fault of the women or not to the fault necessarily of the physicians themselves, but the system was designed that pressure begins to build for a decision to be made. Right. In other words, we need to move these people through. We need right. to get these things done. We just can't sit here and do nothing. Right. Because doing nothing is you know, what midwives are well-trained to do and right. what doctors are not trained to do. Right. And hospitals, by, just by their very systems, they can't have people tying up rooms for really long periods of time. Right. And so the pressure builds on, even on a physician who wants to give his patient more time, he may start to feel pressure from administration or from something right. else, not just on an individual case, but overall, they'll look at him, they'll call him in, they'll say something, or maybe they won't direct directly attack him but at a, at a grand rounds so they'll talk about how we need to do these we need to do these things and we're going to be looking at this stuff and there's going to be put subtle pressures are going to be come to bear on these physicians or these nurses to make things move along absolutely see it all we've, the time we've all seen the nurses who 
who, you know, I got to do a vaginal exam because the doctor wants to know, or, or I got to turn your pit up every 20 minutes because that's what's ordered or, or, or whatever they, and they feel like they have to do something because if they don't do something, when sign outs come at seven in the morning or seven exactly. at night, they're going to get yelled yeah, at. Exactly. Yes. I've right. had that experience with hospital personnel. Yeah, and he found that the management of the complexities was the variable factor here. He looked at over 53 hospitals and 220,000 patients, and he looked at nursing, he looked at patient flow, he looked at the culture uh, of the hospital itself, and that the that there, there were just two complexities, which gets back to the seven garbage cans. Mm -hmm. And the whole the theme for the thing was that it doesn't have to be that complex. And we in the home birth world know that it doesn't have to be that complex. And later on in one of the other lectures they, about VBAC or something, they talked about the manistats and how the C-section rate in the manistats was about 7% mm -hmm. uh, with comparable women of low risk being 24% in other studies mm. uh, in the hospital-based thing. So there is something about the hospital itself and the very system. Now, we've talked about this on my podcast many times, what we think it is, and it you know, from if you want to get really simple, it's just not basic respect for mammalian birth. Agreed. Agreed. Right? And we don't have to make it more complex than that. We have to basically allow women to move and to eat and to be uh, labor unfettered and uninterrupted. And, and be not able bound to turn down. the lights off in the room if they want to turn the And get into the water off. if they want to. And, and uh, to have the people in the room they want and not have the people in the room they don't want. That's absolutely. That makes sense? It's pretty simple. Right? Yes. Yeah. All right. So... Um, he says there's absolutely no reason in a patient without other indications that any woman should ever go for cesarean section before six centimeters. Interesting. And that thing, you know, people people respect him so much. That there, there were, you know, and you're in a big crowd, and so people do what the crowd does, and nobody was groaning. <laughs> was there. anybody going like, wow, like having an aha moment? You know, I, I, I don't know. I was too busy t typing with my thumbs. <laughs> but to... but my, my thing is, it's like, I, I get it. You know, they respect him. He's saying good stuff. Um, and people are probably thinking, wow, he's so smart. He's so brilliant. You know, like their pair, cause I would, <laughs> I would, cause I would think that the paradigm, when we talk about, you know, you can tell me better as a doctor, you know, you're this passed down knowledge, this, this, this knowledge that you get in medical school, it's passed down as well. You have these, I mean, it's almost like a cult-like atmosphere for medical students. You're, you're in there hundred hours a week as a resident or whatever, just, Busting it out, and there's you, there's strict protocols, ways that you have to be, and you've got to do things the way the people that are teaching you to do them. You've got to get into that paradigm that they've created in their in their facility in their system, and you've got to follow it. You've got to follow along. You cannot rock the boat. So no, if you rock the boat, you get you get you get beaten up. But the thing is, when I get approached by a medical student, like I sat at lunch one day with a with a medical student, and we had a great conversation. And we're now Facebook friends and all that stuff. So, you know, there's a lot of that going on. But, but we had a great conversation. And I told her the one thing that she needs to do is not take everything she gets on right. face value. You need to challenge it. You need to ask why. For the, the simplest thing, like when, you know, why is this woman getting an episiotomy? Right. Why are we prepping this woman's vulva for a vaginal birth with iodine? Right. Well, right. I mean, why does she have to be in stirrups? I mean, these are simple right. questions. Most people go through their residency program, and that's the way they come in as an intern right. or a, even a fourth-year medical student. They're in no position to ask questions, and by the time they're a third or fourth year running it, they've been doing it that way for so long. Exactly. We've talked about that, that it that the, ha the long habit of doing something some way makes it seem 
like it's the right way to like do it, right but you don't have anything to compare it to. Right. Right. Exactly. And you have you don't even have time to investigate or look at other ways of, of, of birthing, for instance, because your time is totally taken up in the paradigm that you're that you're in. So you can't compare. You can't. You know, when I look at physicians who have worked with midwives, for instance, many times they have a, a different approach because they've been able to see another way of doing things. Would you agree with that? Doesn't matter if you. Agree yeah, or not. no, no. Uh, yeah, I, I do agree with that, and I and I think that I was for lucky in my training at, uh, at Cedar Sinai, because in the days when I trained at Cedar Sinai, there were a hundred or more uh, more attending physicians, and it was very much of a private hospital. Mm-hmm. So we saw if we could do a hysterectomy with t- eight different guys and see eight different ways to do it. Got it. Whereas my colleagues who were training at County Hospital downtown, LA County, USC. You know, Dan Michelle was the chairman of that department, and it was Michelle's way or the highway, and mm. everybody did everything exactly the same. Right. And and if you didn't do it exactly the same on Friday morning, you got crucified at Grand Rounds, where Dan Michelle and a few other attendings would 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 take pleasure in the uh, you know sort of embarrassment wow. of the residents, and that's they thought that that was a good way to learn. Right. You know, that wouldn't fly in these days right now. That's sort right. of like whipping your kid with a, with a belt. Right. Um, that sort of stuff has gone away, I believe. But I think it was really good. And I think that midwives, because of the way they get trained, especially the um, uh, direct entry midwives, the certified professional midwives, licensed midwives. Well, you know, there was a lot of misconception, t- uh, too, about the names of midwives again. And I heard people come up to the microphone ask at some of the lectures and ask questions about lay midwives. And I just kept cringing. I right. kept cringing because the, you know, she says I work in California and the lay midwives here, and I'm sitting right. with I'm sitting with somebody who's from California. She she leans over to me. And she says there are no lay midwives in California. Well, there there are there there probably are lay midwives. In but California, that's not what she's talking. But that's not what she's talking about. No, she she's talking, talking about, about certified professional midwives. She's talking about licensed midwives. Um, other than C certified nurse right. midwives is right. probably what she's speaking about. Or she might even be using that term to denote home birth midwives because you know there is a there. There may be a thought that if it's a home birth midwife, then that automatically means it's a lay midwife, and yeah. that that person so doesn't. Have, yeah. To make a long story short, I'm gonna I'm gonna pay attention to what Neil Shaw is doing. I have been paying attention to. Him. We've communicated a few times. I mean, he knows who I am, which I feel honored to know. I'm gonna be in Boston in October. I sent him a text. Uh, uh, I haven't heard back from him, but I sent him a text yesterday. I think it was to, to tell him about that. Possibly get together. I was hoping to get together at the conference, but he was only there Saturday and then he left. Okay, um, that's amazing. Obvi- that's obviously good. a busy guy. Okay, I'm going to change it up a little bit now. And again, if you have questions about this or you have comments, you can certainly email me at askdrstew at gmail.com. Um, the, next, the next lecture I went to was a completely different thing. It was about postmenopausal hormone therapy. Why are you looking at me like that? Do you think I need some of that? Uh, no. <laughs> well, I do think you need it, and here's why, and I'll tell you. Oh. Not, not right now. I don't not know, right now. No. I don't know your medical history, darling. No. I just know that you had a baby when you were 46. Yes. Right. How old is that baby now? <laughs> she is, she'll be six years old in uh, August. So if I do my math correctly, you're 51 or 52. I'll be 52 in a couple months. Happy yeah. birthday. Thank you. All right. So this <laughs> was, the lecture was on hormone therapy and coronary vascular disease. Hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. Good stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Heart attacks, good stuff. All right. And um, so then what he said was the Women's Health Initiative, which was a study that came out about a decade ago or maybe even a little bit more did a lot of damage to uh, hormone replacement therapy because they came out and they found that women who took estrogen plus progesterone mm-hmm. had eight more cases of breast cancer right. 
per 10,000 than women who didn't after only three and a half years. And I've said this on this podcast before, that my belief is that every one of those women had breast cancer before the, the, the thing started, and right. yet and the hormones probably just, caused the breast cancer to grow faster. Got it. I may renege on that just a little bit now, because in the estrogen arm alone, there, was, there wasn't an increased risk of breast cancer. So it was the estrogen and progesterone that increased the risk of breast cancer. And the risk went from 35 per 10,000 to 43 per 10,000. So in other words, there were eight cases per 10,000 of breast cancer. And for that, almost all internists across the country, almost all family practitioners across the country, and many OBGYNs across the country stopped Stop. recommending That's hormone right. replacement therapy right. to women in their early 50s and, uh, or late 50s mm -hmm. when it does the most benefit. And I'll mm -hmm. talk about that in a second. So then he, the guy, again, this is a, this is a, it's a great technique for lecturing is sort of to bring in an analogy like the seven garbage cans that Dr. Shaw did. And the guy asked everybody, How many, who in the audience here has a credit card? So everybody so raises their everybody hand. Everybody raises their hand. He says, who has two credit cards? And everybody raises mm -hmm. their hand. He says, did you know the chance of identity theft is eight per 10,000? Mm -hmm. How many of you are going to get rid of your credit cards? <laughs> okay. Right. And, and of course, nobody's going to get rid of their right. credit cards for a eight per 10,000 risk of right. having their life stolen. Right. All right. But we're going to get rid of hormone replacement therapy because there's an eight... And that was the only reason 10, why the... Yeah. The, reason was, the study was stopped for that reason. Okay. Okay. So, um, then he went on to say that the data shows that starting hormone replacement ther therapy early, basically less than 60, uh, lowers the relative risk of death from all causes, all causes, to 0.73. In other words, you're less likely to die Period. if you take hormone replacement therapy hmm. from all causes, coronary disease, cancer, broken bones, anything. Interesting. Right. So it's a way for, to, for uh, women to pr pr uh, overall pr prolong their life. Now, not blowing things out of proportion. Is this the, the fountain of youth that we've been looking no, for? No, because not, a relative risk of 0.73 right. isn't that significant. You know, right. It's significant, but it's not right. a, a huge change right. from not taking it. But right. it, it, it's it showing that there's actually a benefit hmm. rather than a... A detriment. Detriment. Now, he went on to also say that they looked at statins... Mm -hmm. And aspirin, mm -hmm. as they talk about some, you know, as you get older, it helps mm -hmm. prevent coronary, because remember, the talks about coronary vascular disease right. and heart attacks. He said men benefit from statins and aspirin, but not so much but for women. But not women. Interesting. Why? Do they know why? Uh, <coughs> you know, he didn't get into that. He didn't get into the weeds on that. Hmm. But, uh, you know, I think that that just sort of makes sense. It's not... It's not anti-feminist. It's not my, no. My, men and women misogynist. are different, right? We're right. not giving men hormone replacement therapy right. because mean, that's not something they would. But, but my question is, what you know? Because I tend to look at things from a natural perspective. Why would we need hormone replacement therapy? Why are we needing to go and get a pill to take? when we're postmenopausal to help balance things out and make us healthier. To me, there's something still missing here. I, I really feel like something's missing. I almost feel like it's a part of the, you know, it's, it's again, looking at it from this very Western medical view. I mean, have we looked at other cultures and how women stay healthy into, into in postmenopause? Have we, have we done that research? And we're just looking at one little thing. And then the, 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 uh, the, the benefit you know, the suspected benefit is not that much of a benefit. And we don't know, is there other problems that are caused 
you know, that maybe this last study 10 years ago was stopped because of the problems that came up. So we don't know if we took the study all the way out, will we see other problems that, that come up? So I don't know. I don't, I'm not really totally buying into it yet. I'm kind of like, I feel like I need some more information. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's a very open, you know, mind. because That's maybe, a very open maybe there's, way to go. Will there be more information coming? Yes, there will. It's obviously a big area of research. And so. do you think that, I mean, is this going to drastically, is this going to suddenly become like, okay, now when you go to the OB and you're postmenopausal and you're having hot flashes or whatever, and, and, or now are, do you think that OBs are going to just start saying, okay, I can write you this prescription now? Um, no, but what they're going to do is they're going to suggest what, what he suggested were three things that you do for women who want to refuse hormone replacement therapy. And I, and I can't, uh, the first one I couldn't hear. Okay. So I, <laughs> I wrote down triple X because I, I couldn't <laughs> hear it. But the other one was uh, uh, ultrasound of the carotid arteries to look at the intimal thickness. Mm -hmm. And the other one was a lipid profile. And women who have normal intimal thickness of their carotid arteries and lipid profile, if they want to refuse hormone replacement therapy, all, you know, there's no probably reason that they can't as long as they don't, you know, again, you don't also get the benefits of the vasomotor benefits and the, mm -hmm. and the libido and all that other stuff. But if you want to refuse, but if you have a high intimal thickness already, or you already have plaque building up, or you already have a high stinky cholesterol, right. then since statins aren't going to work as well for you, mm -hmm. estrogen therapy might be something you'd really want to consider. Okay. Right. I, I get it. He got ahead of me, by the way. And by the way, he, the, uh, we, d we think that the best way uh, to give these things is not pills anymore. It hasn't so, been pills for a while. It's been transdermal. Oh, so... In, so creams or patches. Oh, I see. Okay. Right. Uh, and that seems the best route. And uh, um, by the way, estrogen alone mm -hmm. reduces the risk of breast cancer. Okay. When was Re the last time you heard somebody say that? Reduce the risk of breast cancer? Estrogen reduces the risk of breast cancer I, I alone. I have ever heard that. Right? Similar to people who take raloxifene, which is a... It's a Drug distantly related to tamoxifen. Some people take it prophylactically. It's a, I think it, uh, it helps to build bone. Um, but uh, some people take it for building bone. But and I also thought too much estrogen was a risk for breast cancer. Didn't you think so? Yeah. So what? I don't get it. Uh, they think it's the, it's the combination of estrogen plus progesterone. That's the problem. Got it. And that estrogen is good for you. Not only good for your uh, preventing, like, again, death from all things decrease when you take estrogen. But uh, so in a way, it is. The now, listen, we're talking about women in their late, in their early fifties or mid fifties. We're not mm -hmm. talking about starting this on women farther down the road. The the benefits do not appear, and they're actually greater risks when you start it late. So you would not have a sixty six year old who walks into your office who's been off hormones for fifteen years and suggests that they get on it because their risk profile is going to go up in the first six months or so that they take it, the risk Got of it. stroke. the risk Because you, you don't know what those vessels have been doing for those, and they could be really narrowed and, and could cause problems. So this is where you want to catch them at an earlier age. And certainly you want to have this conversation with your doctor. Those people listening, you want to have this conversation when you reach that age. And even before you reach menopause, in your late 40s, you want to start to look into these sorts of things and start to discuss the issues because sometimes just getting on hormones a little early will help the transition so you don't go through that period of time where you have irregular prolonged periods or, or unpredictable periods or you start to get really moody or you want to beat up your husband or, or, <laughs> or divorce uh, him or, div yeah, well, or yeah. yeah, you can yeah. divorce him. That's okay. <laughs> Just don't beat him up. Um, yes. Cause you could go to jail for that. But, but so, so what I, so correct me if I'm wrong, but what I hear you saying is that women that are maybe perimenopausal, like they're starting to maybe notice some signs that their menses are changing, or maybe they're noticing some, you know, some of the symptoms associated with perimenopause. Uh, they go in for their exam, their OB or their midwife to start talking about, you know, 
are there some things that I, I, I should be thinking about taking as I as my body starts to transition? You know, it's interesting because just to talk about my medical history a little bit, both of all of the my mother and my aunt, her sister, both had hysterectomies. My aunt had no children. My mother had a hysterectomy at about 46 years old for fibroids. So when you say hysterectomy, they took their ovaries too? They took everything. Okay, so that's called a hysterectomy with bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy. Technically speaking, a hysterectomy, just for the listeners, is... It's just the uterus. Just the uterus, right. Okay, so they had a total hysterectomy, with including the ovaries. And I, this was, I guess my, uh, that was probably about, let's see, probably about... 35 years ago or so. Um, And my mom went into menopause immediately. She was given hormone replacements and things like that. But point being is that I don't know what menopause looks like normally in the women in my family. So as I approach those years, I really don't have anything to go. I have no family history to to rely on. Do you understand what I'm saying? Or at least get an idea yeah, of what so, it might so look like. So have you scheduled me. your hysterectomy? Hell no. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> well, you're not going to do it the same way your mother and your grandmother did it? You know, no. Well, actually, my grandmother was lucky enough to hold on to everything. And, 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 yeah, no, I'm just, I'm, I'm Yes, yeah, so I, I hear you. No, I totally hear you. That was a joke. I, I get it. But I actually have several friends who are my age who have recently gotten hysterectomies. Hysterectomies. Yes. And uh, with their bilateral salpingo-oophorectomies. Not the bilateral. Oh, just the uterus. Yes, out. just the uterus. Out, okay. Which I find isn't that become more common if uh, that they leave the ovaries in to continue to. Have well, the recommendation is still if women under forty-five, they probably leave them in. Women over forty-five, they often recommend take them out um, to remove any possibility of developing ovarian cancer down the road. But again, that's an informed consent issue, and a lot of women will choose to. to leave them or take them a lot of it looks that they look at their family history they may do some um, you know cancer screening now that we have the genetic screening stuff right and and find out beforehand so right. it, that that's a, pers- that's a personal choice right. Right. right so so my question is then someone like me or someone you know someone like me um is that what you're suggesting or is that what you're saying that these folks are suggesting go in and, and consult and and then possibly start to take hormone therapy even before you've hit menopause? And yeah, if your periods start to become regular, you're skipping them or you're going through three months without a period and then you're right. having two heavy periods and the stuff like that. Yeah, because once you get on it, things will even... You can, it's kind of like can birth control It's pill. like being on birth control right. pills. Very similar. Interesting. Okay, so enough on that topic. Okay. The next uh, thing I was supposed to go to was a lunch meeting. I paid $55 for some... <laughs> for a hot dog. For some chicken. No, no, it was chicken and a salad. I paid, <laughs> I paid $55 because I was going to sit at a round table... The topic was, how should hospitals deal with home birth transports? And the moderator was supposed to be Amos Grunbaum. Do you know who Amos Grunbaum is? No, I think that's one of your That's one of of the Cornell guys. guys. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, Cornell guy from... uh, I thought you were going to say it was the doctor who shall not be named was the the moderator. Oh no 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 not her. That would have been awesome. No no no, no, no I, yeah I don't I don't she's not, I don't even know if she's a fe- she's not a fellow of ACOG so she's I, not but she spoke there I know. T- two years ago or whatever yeah, gave like a keynote anyway yeah I know. so that let's was hear- in Hawaii that was a, that was a regional one um so so anyway he didn't show what yeah it was a good lunch we had a great conversation Come with, on. The, with the seven of us that were at the table uh, six or seven of us was that his political statement. No, no, I, they, and, but the thing, again, we, remember we talked at the beginning at ACOG, how they run things mostly smoothly, but 
nobody came to us to our table and said, "Oh, we're sorry, your moderator didn't show," or "Here, I'm going to have, I'm going to sit in on this," or uh, blah blah blah. They just they just left it. I think that some of the people went and complained, and I probably should have said something about getting my fifty-five bucks back, <laughs> <laughs> but I forgot. Actually, I got too busy doing stuff the next couple of days that I completely forgot to go. And, they should have just let you moderate it. Well, I sort of did. You see? Because we went around the table and we just asked people what they did. And I was going to try to keep a low profile at the table, but then they asked me what I do. And How, you can't possibly well, keep a low I profile. I can't. <laughs> I can't. But that's where I met the medical student. Uh, I met uh, some really other really interesting people. Uh, doc, one, I met a, f- a physician who has got the biggest resume of anybody that I've ever met. And a very nice guy. He sort of cringes when I talk about doing breaches and stuff at home. But... <laughs> He, the, everybody listened and we had a really nice dialogue. So how many people are we talking? There here? were like seven or eight of us at the lunch table. So, was, but were there more than, how many people were there for the round table discussion? Just that seven and eight? Yeah, every, there were, there, there were like 50 tables and each table had a different topic and you oh, could, and you, and you, you know, you ordered it, you know, online, you Got like it. open table for a, Got it. for, a, but you know for ACOG. But you know what's so interesting? I'm, I'm quite shocked. You said there's five, what, 5,000 people there? Yeah. That there were seven or eight people at a table to talk well, about Well, a lot of people transport. don't do those. They go do other seminars during that period of time. I hear that, or but they, I just Or they go, just or they like go over just... to have, a, you know, the bar. Uh, you know, look at the San Diego Convention Center. It's such a great area, that gas lamp area. Yeah. I mean, there was a, there was a Dodgers that were playing that weekend because <laughs> they got rained out on Sunday, but there were Dodger games going on on Friday and Saturday night. And the, and the stadium's right there, the stadium's isn't it? like a block away. So, I mean, there was just it was just a happen in place. And we had the uh, circumcision protesters out front. <gasps> oh. Oh, yeah. They were, they were some uh, loud people. <laughs> okay. Well, wait, wait, wait. We won't get to that. Can I go back to the home birth thing? But you don't, well, we didn't talk about anything because he didn't show up. That, uh, you don't think that was intentional? I would no, love No, I don't think because he wouldn't have signed up for it if he, I mean... He, he, he thinks that, I'm, I'm sure these guys think everyone's on their side. And by the way, it wasn't going to be a nasty thing because it, well, there was a talk that I went to, which I'll get to on day two, um, uh, probably at the next podcast, we'll talk a little bit about, about another lecture about how hospitals should deal with home birth transports. Okay. I just wanted to, I wanted to see where he was coming from. <laughs> yeah, I would have loved that. I would have paid like $155 to see that. Well... You but we see, didn't. You would have seen we say nothing. nothing. Yeah. I would have been seeing you, which right. I can see and for I free. I didn't even eat the dessert because I'm not a dessert guy. <laughs> right. Stop anyway, lying. so we, we got we got a few more minutes left, and I want to get on to the last lecture that I went to that day mm-hmm. that I that I want to report on. There were other ones I went to, but this one was called um, "V Back to the Future," hmm. and uh, it was cute. cute. He had a cute, cute little logo. He had the the yeah, uh, Back the to the Future thing. Yeah. Yeah. He mm-hmm. had the cute little logo. And he said there being there's about 1.4 million uh, VBA, uh, C-sections per year in the United States. California, uh, which is the, my state, has the sixth lowest successful VBAC rate. Um, sixth lowest successful. Yeah. So about only six to seven percent of people who attempt a VBAC, I mean, who who have who are have a previous cesarean section, will be given the option of a VBAC <coughs> in California. In other words, 93 percent. A PV people who have a primary C-section right. in California will have a repeat C-section. Okay, but is that, you said given the option because of the facilities or because... For whatever reason. For whatever reason, all right. Right. And who's the state, what states are on the higher end, I'm curious, of a re- successful repeat? You know, I don't know that. I don't know that. I have a, I have a, a picture of the cesarean section rates. Mm-hmm. The cesarean section rate in California is 41%. Hmm. Arizona, 30%. Okay. Some of these I can't read because it's too dark in our in John's studio. What about Alaska? Curious in more remote areas. I Alaska mean, has a higher home birth, highest home birth rate in the country at oh. about 
I think something like seven or 11, eight or eleven percent. Mm-hmm. Something like next next highest I think was um, Alaska, Oregon, maybe. That can't remember. Sounds about right. But the the C section rates are fairly high. Can you read that number right there? I have to put on my glasses. Oh, I can't read that. It looks like forty something. Can you read this number right here? <laughs> Which one? That Alaska. One. Look, there's a bunch of blind folks in here. <laughs> yeah, it's a bad. It looks top. like it says forty. Yeah, so even the C. Yeah, so the C section rate in Alaska is forty two percent. Jeez. Which may, see, I was wondering if it if because you're in like the remote areas, if that would make fl- it higher. But they're flown in. They're all flown in. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. They have a, uh, the reason they have a high home birth rate is probably because people can't get on the can't plane. get to a hospital. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, California sucks. All right, and so he says in 1970 when the C-section rate in the United States was five percent, mm-hmm. the placenta accreta rate was one in seven thousand. Okay. Now it's one in 533. Whoa. And okay. can you dis- tell what placenta accreta is to your listeners they, uh, who might yeah, not know? Yeah, placenta accreta is where the placenta, normally the placenta uh, attaches to the uterus and there's a little layer of, of fib- fibrin or fibrous tissue called the nidobux layer that allows the placenta to shear off after, right. after the From the, from the uterus delivered. after delivery. Correct. Uh, placenta accreta, the placenta actually invades the uterine wall. Right, so it goes so and it no grows separation. in and you can't right. get it out unless The you treatment for placenta accreta is a hysterectomy. So it's usually a cesarean hysterectomy, or mm. sometimes if you don't know it, it's a hysterectomy, then you end up with postpartum hemorrhaging, and you end up having to do a hysterectomy because you can't get the placenta out. There are some conservative ways to treat it. I actually went to a lecture on that day two. We may or may not have time to talk about that next time. Mm. Anyway, we're running out of time. So uh, when he mentioned home VBAC, that's where the groans in the crowd. Mm. And I'm starting to shake my head. I'm looking at the guy. I'm giving him the evil, <laughs> the evil eye. I'm in the third row. And I'm giving him the evil eye because he, he presented uh, uh, Chervenak and Grunbaum's data as if it was gospel. Mm. He basically didn't talk about the fact that it was a retrospective review of birth certificate records without right. without controls, and a horrible way to make make a study and right. and to draw. And he, they present this information in the wax paper and stuff as if this is right. Gospel. Anyway, I so that guy he lost me there. Right. All right. Um, but then he looked at other things that people use to determine whether or not someone's a good candidate. And he talked about scar thickness using an ultrasound on scar thickness. He said, "Don't use it. It's poor data." So I agreed with him on that. So okay. I, he 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 won me back on that one. <laughs> uh, he said that uh, interdelivery in, intervals of less than 24 months. Le- so, oh, our, our, from delivery to delivery yeah. of less than 24 mm-hmm. months mm-hmm. is a twofold increased risk of uterine rupture. Okay. All right. Now, a twofold increased risk is still very small. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, he also did did we he did say um, or we did discuss the fact that the risk of a bad outcome from a uterine rupture where you get a neonatal demise was about six percent of uterine ruptures. Okay. So, so in other words, uterine rupture doesn't always mean that baby is going to die, but there is about a six percent right. chance. But that's part of the reason that they want they they, they groan right. they groan when they talk about hospitals as if right. Be, I mean, home birthing as if being in a hospital will will prevent that terrible outcome. And there's no actual data to say that. Right. Um, uh, he said that. Uh, no, by the way, no one study should be considered science. So when a study comes out that says something, we should be very careful about reacting to it. But that's unfortunate. But that's what, that's what he did when he started the talk. Yeah. Well, quoting. No, no, he's just quoting other studies. Well, there have been a lot of studies that have shown that that uh, VBAC is riskier in home birthing than, than, than hospital birthing and stuff like that. But there, again, there's so much bias and there's so many flawed studies. Same thing with the breached 
when we get to breach studies, we've talked about that before. Right. Um, he leans toward induction at 39 weeks. For uh, for VBAC? Yes. What? Yes. But doesn't that, uh, why would you? And my, my thought when he said that is because women are plants. <laughs> Okay. What do you mean by that? There are plants. Do you ask your plant when it wants to be watered? You know, you know. Do you ask your plant when you want to, when, it, when it's got a dead why branch would, on it? Why would you? Why would you ask a woman what why? she wants? Why? 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 I don't understand. Well, he uses retrospective data about uh, about success rates and about uh, morbidity rates, and basically he comes up with this idea that if you you should induce VBACs at thirty nine weeks. Okay, I'm, I'm cocking my head to the side, but my question—I no, mean, look at—there is data, but he's the problem is he's cherry picking his he's cherry, data. That's, well, is there any data about induction on a on a uterus with scar? Because I I, I had a V back. All the my five after my first cesarean were all vaginal, but my I guess it was actually my number four baby that I had in hospital. You know, as I was going a little over my due date, which I did, uh, my doctor was getting a little freaked out, and, and I was like, "Well, I'm, what are we going to do?" And he says, "Well, I'm not going to induce you." Well, th- that's that's wrong. Even ACOG guidelines suggest that pitocin is actually fine for induction okay and you shouldn't treat with with a v-back with should, a, yeah that well yeah with their v in their v-back guidelines which were reaffirmed i think two years ago um they do recommend that they said uh, that's okay yeah that's All okay right. okay right, and we're running out of time so the last thing he says is that a lot of the reasons why doctors won't do v-back is considered the because of the increased liability or their perceived liability and he says just as we have a vaccine uh injury compensation program mm-hmm which protects the drug companies against vaccine injury, mm-hmm. we should also possibly have a pool or, or a government, again, I'm not a big fan of government, right. but I think we, in this particular case, having a government, if, they, if they, everybody wants to lower the C-section rate right. and improve the VBAC rate, one of the things you can't do then is blame the doctor when a bad thing happens right. if they follow certain guidelines and a VBAC ends up in a bad thing. So let's end up getting rid of this increased malpractice premiums and increased fear and all this stuff by having a VBAC injury v- pool. Is Inj- that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, VBAC injury compensation rate. Okay, and that way I it mean, would kind of like... An, an compensation a- pool, correct. So in other words, instead of... Uh, Program. Pro- instead of, uh, you know... Uh, if there's a bad suing, outcome, a baby, a baby has brain damage, right. then, the, the, then it's the covered. Can, I got it. That's right, rather than the doctor's malpractice premium and the doctor's life being destroyed because he tried to do what the woman wanted right. and then the things didn't work out. Okay, okay. So out-of-the-box thinking on how to get us to be able to have more VBACs. And so that was sort of the end of my day one. Wow, that was right? great. And then I got to meet my daughter uh, <laughs> for dinner because she's down back, back now from Barcelona in San Diego. I had a really nice dinner with my daughter and... My friend Adrian, who's there, and my uh, cousin Debbie, and we went out for dinner at uh, a place called Seersuckers. Had a really good time. Uh, so that was my experience today. I mean, I, I did enjoy it. I ran into some com- uh, I ran into some comrades, <laughs> and uh, some people that I've had problems with in the past. Where I said hello to them, and I still get the feeling that they don't. Uh, they were kind of walking away, like hi, Stu, and walking away really they, fast. They don't know what to say to me. Right. They really don't know what to say to me. Right. I make them very uncomfortable. Right. Interesting. Right. I love it. All right. So we'll talk more on podcast number 112. This has been podcast number 111. Uh, a lot of information here. If you have questions, hit me up at askdrstew at gmail.com or bother Kimberly at kimberlydurden.com. <laughs> we hope you'll find us uh, on uh, iTunes and at Dr. Stu's podcast. Until next time, thanks for listening.